Well, I'd like to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Uh, and so I'd like uh, for us to begin um, with, uh, by, by just looking at Psalm 102 together. I want to read through it, and uh, then I want to um, share with you some thoughts from the psalm, trying to follow the, the path of the psalmist here as he goes through this, uh, this song, this prayer. And then, hopefully as we go, be able to, to, to draw out some points of application that I think are very helpful uh, today. So let's begin looking at Psalm 102 together. And of course, we have a heading to this psalm, which is kind of unusual in book four of the psalms. We're in book four here, coming close to finishing book four. Uh, but uh, many of the psalms in book four do not have headings. This one is unique. It does have a heading. Also has interesting because of the nature of the heading. Uh, it describes a little bit of the situation of the psalmist, and yet it doesn't identify for us who the psalmist was. Notice what the heading reads here. A prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. And what is his prayer? Look at verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread because of the sound of my groaning. My bones cling to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake, and I am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever. And the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary From heaven the Lord viewed the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the peoples are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, O my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations." Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Pray with me, please, as we... Consider the message of Psalm 102. Lord, this morning we come to you asking for your help. Acknowledging that we are sinners. Lord, we have sinned against you. We have done things that are wrong. We have thought things that are wrong. We have loved things that are wrong. We have spoken things that are wrong. Lord, in every area and every one of us have sinned. We have fallen, fall short of what you've expected and what you've commanded. And so, Lord, we often, I think, find ourselves in need of your grace. And today, we come to you and we ask that you would be gracious to us. 
that you would illuminate your word, that your spirit would, would, uh, would reveal to us and help us to understand the truth of Psalm 102 and then help us to see how it applies and speaks to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would give us the, the will to humble ourselves and receive the truth even if it confronts us and even as it confronts us and it corrects us. And it trains us and teaches us to be righteous. Lord, we pray that you would do your work by the power of your Holy Spirit using your word today. Lord, help me as I speak that I be your instrument and you would glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the title of this psalm, the heading of this psalm, I think is interesting and helpful to us. It's important. A prayer of the afflicted. You ever feel afflicted, overcome, uh, uh, just beaten down, worn down? That's kind of the idea. Under attack. He says the prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed. You ever feel overwhelmed? The idea of overwhelmed is the idea of, uh, of being shrouded. It's like having a blanket laying on you, a heavy blanket just on all sides oppressing you and weighing down. You ever feel that way? If you don't or you haven't, then it's still early. It's January. It's only the second week of the year. You have a long time to go. <laughs> the truth of the matter is feeling afflicted, being overwhelmed. These are, sent, these are things we can, I think, relate to. The psalmist says, this is a prayer of the afflicted, someone who is under attack, someone who has suffered and is suffering and is overwhelmed. He's come to the point where he's overcome. He cannot any longer stand. Feels as though he cannot hold on any longer. And yet, I love the way the psalm starts in this heading. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that I believe these headings... Uh, are part of the original text of Scripture. And I believe that they are, uh, are instructive to us. And the psalmist here, I think, says that the, the, he's, he's afflicted, he's suffering, he's enduring hardship, he is overwhelmed, he's at the end of his rope. And what does he do when he's at the end of his rope? He offers up a prayer. Right? He pours out his complaint before Yahweh. He's not running to uh, tell his friends or complain to his family or anyone else. He's complaining to the Lord. And, and, and when he says pouring out his complaint, don't get the idea that here, uh, and, and we've seen as we read through it, don't get the idea that he's sticking his finger at God and saying, God, you did this and God, you did that and I'm upset. And he's, that's not the idea. He's not complaining here in a negative way. He's, he's bringing his concerns. He's pouring out his heart to the Lord. A New Testament analogy for that, I believe it's the book, one of the letter, the letter of Peter where he says that we are casting all our care on him because he cares for us. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He's afflicted, he's overwhelmed, and he casts his care on the Lord. I think that's important. Right from the beginning that we understand the whole context of this psalm is it's a prayer that he's praying when he is afflicted, when he is suffering, when he is at the end of his rope and has nowhere else to go, he goes to God. And I don't think we should take from this that he is going to God as a last resort. We do that sometimes. Simply that this is where he is taking his pain and his suffering and his confusion and his heart and his hurt and his heartache he's taking it to the lord so right from the beginning we see this is the the the, the framework of the psalm the psalmist is praying he's crying out to god and notice here that that really i want you to see it as we go through there's really three kind of uh sections or three portions of the psalm it's actually i think five stanzas here uh, but uh you can, we can kind of see them here. And in fact, if you notice the first two verses, this is kind of an introduction here. But in the first two verses, the psalmist, he, uh, he, he asks that God hear his prayer. In fact, he makes five specific requests in the first two verses, the first two sentences. And what are his requests? He says, hear my prayer. 
and let my cry come to you. I think it's interesting. I, the, 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 the sense I get from this first verse is that the psalmist is determined to pray. Right? I'm going to pray to you, Lord. I'm just concerned that you're going to listen. Right? I'm praying and the prayer is going up, but the question is, is it getting anywhere? Do you ever wonder about that? When you pray, is the prayer getting anywhere? Is it actually coming before the ears of God? Is God actually hearing it? Notice, and this is important because the psalmist, even in the way that he speaks of it here, let my cry come to you. He acknowledges that God is the one who's in control, even of the the hearing of his prayer. He also is acknowledging here, I think, even in in the choice of terminology, that God is not obligated to hear him. He's praying and he's determined to pray, but he recognizes that God doesn't have to hear his prayer. And so what does he say? God, let my prayer come to you. God, just listen, please, to my prayer. Hear it. Allow it to come to you. Notice verse 2. Don't hide your face from me in the day of trouble. That's the third request. Don't turn away from me, he's saying. Don't hide your face. Instead, incline your ear, he says. So don't turn your face away from me, Lord. That's one request. The second thing is, do the opposite. Instead of turning away from me, lean in closer to hear me when it's a day of trouble. And then he says, in the day that I call, answer me speedily. Isn't the hardest thing when we're praying and we believe that God hears our prayers and we believe that God answers our prayers, but we're praying and he doesn't answer speedily? Isn't that the hardest thing about prayer? When we pray and we believe that God is answering, we believe that God is hearing, we believe that God is working, and yet... He's not answering speedily. In the day that we call, the psalmist says, Lord, as I pour my heart out to you, this is what he desires. God, respond to me. Let me know that you're hearing me. Let me know that you're going to answer. This is the urgency with which he prays. There's There's a real sense of urgency here. And I think we'll see as we go through the psalm why. His circumstances are urgent. He needs God to answer quickly. He doesn't have a lot of time left. And yet, I think just even the way this psalm begins, the the requests here at the beginning of the psalm, they show us a, a humility. The psalmist is not making demands of God. He's not... Uh, angry at God. He's not raising his fists toward heaven. He's, he's pleading with God. He's coming and he's humbling himself before God. That's a huge part of prayer. A lot of times we talk about prayer and we want to know why should we pray to God when God already knows what we, what we, what we need and God already knows what we're going to ask. And sometimes we think in terms like that. We, we, we try to rationalize prayer in that way, but the reality is Prayer does a lot of things for us that don't happen if we don't pray. And one of those things is humbling ourselves. When we come to the Lord and we pray, we make requests, we are acknowledging that He is not under any obligation. He doesn't have to listen. He doesn't have to respond. He doesn't have to do for us anything that we ask. And so the psalmist here is demonstrating that. He's coming to God and he's not making demands. He's coming and he's saying, Lord, please just hear me. And so the psalmist begins airing his complaint. And so I want to start with that, the psalmist's complaint. And the first two stanzas here, first stanzas, verse 3 to 7, and then verse uh, 8 to, to 11, as the second stanza. And these first two stanzas, the psalmist really gives us three uh, complaints, three uh, issues that he's dealing with. These are his present circumstances. Three things that the psalmist is dealing with in his complaint. And the first is this, that he suffered physical illness. The psalmist is crying out, Lord, I am sick. Verses 3 through 7 make it clear. Look at how he describes himself. My days pass like smoke. My bones burn like a hearth. My heart is withered like grass. Right? He forgets to eat. He's so overcome with this physical illness. He says, the sound of my groaning... 
He's in pain. My, 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 he's, he talks about his, his bones clinging to his skin. You get the picture of someone who's wasting away. He's sick. He's, he's got some sort of disease or some sort of illness. And he's wasting away physically. He's getting weaker and weaker. He describes himself in verses 6 and 7, interestingly enough, using some obscure terminology. Um, if you look at different translations of these verses, you'll see there's a lot of different ways they translate these words. Pelican, owl, um, no one really knows for sure what those words mean, what animals they're referring to. I mean, it's, it's a historically obscure thing. Um, obviously, some sort of bird that lives in a desolate place, some sort of bird that's all alone. That's what he's, he, he, he emphasizes that in, in verse 7, and like a sparrow alone on a housetop. Rather than a whole flock of them, it's just one, all by itself. And he says, I'm all alone. I'm, 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 I'm all alone in a desolate place. I, I have nothing. I'm, physically, I'm worn out. I mean, I'm exhausted and my body is, is, is growing weaker. This physical illness is, is a constant struggle. It's a long-term struggle for him. And we don't know what it is. We can't give him a diagnosis here based on his symptoms. But many of you can relate, I think. You've been through times of physical illness or physical uh, struggle with something, and you can relate to that feeling of just uh, that, that day in, day out, pain and suffering and discomfort and, and the, the, the toll that that takes. It's not just a physical toll. It's a toll emotionally. It's a toll spiritually. It's taxing. It's exhausting. It's difficult. And the psalmist here speaks of his physical trial. This is one of the reasons that he feels afflicted and overwhelmed. And again, if you've been through uh, something like that, some sort of physical illness or disease or surgery, recovery, something like that, you can, you can relate a little bit to how the psalmist is feeling here. You've been there. Well, that's not the only problem the psalmist is facing. In the next stanza, verses 8 through 11, there's two other um, issues that he identifies. We're going to kind of work backwards. The second thing I point out here is that he endured punishment from God. He was enduring divine chastening. How do I know that? Well, verse 10, he speaks about God's indignation and his wrath. He speaks, he says there, you have lifted me up and cast me away. Imagine feeling as though God has picked you up and just set you off to the side. God has just said, I don't, I'm not dealing with you anymore. That's the way he feels. I'm reminded of Naomi in the book of Ruth. You can keep your finger here in, in Psalm 102 and turn to Ruth with me if you want. Ruth chapter 1. If I can find it. Joshua judges Ruth, right? Ruth chapter 1. Naomi was a wife and mother forced to leave her home because of a famine. She and her husband and sons go to another country. They leave Bethlehem in the country of Judah, in the land of Judah. They go to Moab. And... There in Moab, her, father, her husband dies, her sons both marry women of Moab, and then they both die, and she's left by herself with these two daughters-in-law. She ends up returning back to her home with just one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth. And in Ruth chapter 1 and verse uh, uh, 19, the two of them, this is Naomi and Ruth, went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they come to Bethlehem, all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, in the translation there, it sounds very um, nice and all, but it, I think it's probably more like the gossip tree. Um, Ooh, is this Naomi? They're not asking Naomi. They're asking each other. You know, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? Well, who is this? Verse 20, Naomi, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Naomi means beautiful. Mara means bitter. She says, don't call me beautiful anymore. Call me bitter. 
For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? I don't think, actually, I, I, don't, I don't think we should be too harsh on Naomi there. I don't think she's blaming God as if she's angry at God. I think she's simply saying, God has done this. She's acknowledging that her life and the misery and the struggles that she has faced are the result of God's doing. This is God's action. And the psalmist here in Psalm 102 is saying the same thing. Because of the indignation of your wrath, you have lifted me up and have cast me away. God, you did this. You are the one who is responsible. I would submit to you the psalmist here like Naomi in many ways, has a right view of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is in control of the events of our lives. And sometimes what that means is that God brings chastening, God brings punishment into our life for the purpose of discipline. The psalmist here speaks of that. That he has experienced chastening from the Lord, discipline from the Lord. And he's suffering. He's afflicted. He's overwhelmed. He's physically sick and he's experiencing the chastening of the Lord. Now, I I think from the context later here of the psalm, I think probably, most likely, he's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity in Babylon. I think this psalm was probably written during that time, if I had to guess. Obviously, it doesn't tell us for sure, but I think there seems to be evidence in here. speaks about the, 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 uh, the stones and the dust of Jerusalem. I think he's, he's probably referring to the destruction that took place there. So he's living through it. He's experiencing the judgment of God, even as a believer. See, even as a Christian, he's experiencing the, the chastening of God, and it's not fun. It's a time of affliction. He's, a, he's overwhelmed by it. And so what does he do? He cries out to the Lord. He's not maligning God. He's not going around and talking about how how bad he has it and complaining to everyone. He's speaking to the Lord and saying, God, I am overwhelmed because I've felt your hand against me. And you'll notice earlier in that same same stanza, verse 8, he speaks about his enemies. So not only is the Lord punishing him, but he's facing hateful enemies. He says, my enemies reproach me all day long. In a way, it seems almost as if when when God's uh, hand of discipline comes in, then the enemies kind of go, hey, this is an opportunity to attack. And so everything kind of happens at once. The enemies, he says, reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me. And we have an expression uh, that someone is a sworn enemy, right? You're familiar with that expression? The idea that someone is, this person's sworn to me. I I don't know that I've ever actually had a sworn enemy. You ever had anybody? I can't think of anybody who's a sworn enemy. Because the idea of a sworn enemy is that they're not hiding. They're not, um, you know, they're not playing nice on the surface and then attacking you from behind. They're just out to get you and they make no bones about it. I'm your sworn enemy. I make it public. That's a public declaration. They are swearing an oath publicly to let everybody know they're against the psalmist. Maybe you can relate to that. I don't know. I really was trying to think this week. I, I, I just not sure that I can think of anybody who's done that. I mean, I suppose we could, we could say Satan is our sworn enemy. Maybe make a connection there, but just as far as people are concerned. But maybe you can relate to that. His enemies, he says, my enemies have surrounded. They, they picked this opportunity when I'm sick, when I'm under the hand of divine judgment. That's when they come after me. When I'm at my weakest point, that's when they attack me. And they, 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 they're public about it. They're not hiding. They come out of the hiding and they say publicly, we're against them. And they come out to attack. The psalmist brings his complaint to the Lord. And and these three things that he mentions, this physical illness, the, the reproach of his enemies, and the, the anger of God, the chastening of God, all three of these 
When he says it's the prayer of the afflicted, when he's overwhelmed, I think we can understand why he'd be overwhelmed. But I would submit to you too, these aren't the only uh, kinds of circumstances that might come into our lives that would make us feel afflicted and overwhelmed. There may be other things that you're dealing with where today you feel afflicted and overwhelmed. You feel as though you just can't go on any further. You don't have the strength. You you don't have the ability to continue. You don't have the wisdom and the knowledge to go on. Well, I would encourage you to enter into the, the cry of the psalmist here. Pour out your complaint to the Lord. Pour out your heart to the Lord in prayer. Because the psalmist begins and he's pouring out his complaint, just voicing his issue, voicing his complaints. These are the things, God, these are the things that I'm dealing with. These are the things I can't handle. And he's just laying them out to the Lord here. And it's almost as if, even as he begins to to speak about these things, and notice how he ends that second stanza there. My days are like a shadow. This is verse 11 that lengthens. And I wither away like grass. It's the second time he's used that image of withering grass. But he says, this is what I'm like. I'm like like grass that just withers and dries up. But even as he is complaining about his own physical weakness, his own limitations, his own uh, life that seems to be so fast fleeting and, and going away, even as he's doing that, it's like he has to complete the thought. Because verse 12, But you, O Lord, shall endure forever. I love this because even as he's pouring out his complaint to the Lord, he is reminded of the one whom he's praying and he begins to think on Yahweh. His mind begins to shift from thinking about his own troubles and trials and circumstances to thinking about the Lord. You see, this this act of prayer, this, this engaging in prayer here begins to change him. I would submit to you, begins to bring comfort. Just in bringing his complaints to the Lord, we see that the psalmist is comforted. And I want to show you here the psalmist's comfort. There's two things I think the psalmist is comforted by. The first one is found there in verses 12 through 17, the next stanza. He says, you, Lord, I'm like grass that withers, but you, you endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations. Uh, by the way, just before we go on there, I think it's interesting, worth noting something here. The psalmist recognizes that his life is not going to continue forever, right? That's a, a fact of reality that many people don't like to admit. You know, I've had the opportunity um, to, to speak at a number of funerals, uh, in the, the, the years that I've been here uh, at the church as a pastor, and um, their funerals are never easy. But what I find is that a lot of people simply do not like to talk about, do not like to think about, do not like to even, uh, just they just can't handle the idea, the concept of death, to know that this life is going to be over at some point. The psalmist here He doesn't pretend that life is going to go on forever. Notice what he says. He speaks to the Lord. The remembrance of your name is going to continue to all generations. Even after I'm gone, he says, there's going to be people who are worshiping you. Even after I'm gone, I know my life isn't all there is. There's going to be something. It's going to continue after I'm gone. This is important for the perspective of the psalmist here, he begins to see here and think about what's going to happen after he's gone. And so while he's afflicted, while he's suffering, while he's in pain and in discomfort and he feels overwhelmed and he's crying out to the Lord, he begins to think about the Lord. He begins to think about what's happening, what's going to happen after he's gone. The generations to come. That's going to be a big part in what he says here in the last part of the psalm. Notice what he says is going to happen. Again, he's looking to the future. He's thinking about the future. What God is going to do in the future. Verse 13, you will arise and have mercy on Zion. For the time to favor her, yes, the set time has come. 
God is going to arise and have mercy. As I said before, I think this psalmist wrote this probably in amid the destruction of Jerusalem. Maybe during those decades when all the people had been carried captive and he was stuck there uh, in that desolate place where there was hardly any people left and the place was in ruins and everything was broken down. And he's looking around him and he's seeing this city that's torn to pieces. The people have been, uh, been destroyed. Their homes and families have been broken up and taken away. And he's sitting there looking around at all the destruction. And then his mind begins to go toward the future and he begins to think about what is God going to do And he says, you're going to arise. You're going to show mercy. There's going to be a day when you return and you show mercy on this place again. But notice what he says about that. The time, the set time has come. You know know something? This is important. When we're in the middle of this this life and we're struggling with, with, with trials and we're struggling with affliction and we feel overwhelmed, we need to understand something. God is patient. And I'm not saying here patient with us. What we need to understand, and the psalmist is touching on this, is that the Lord is patiently waiting to fulfill His plan. The Lord is patient. He's patient. He's got a plan. He's working out His plan. And as he's working out his plan, he is waiting. He's not rushed. He's not in a hurry. He's not in distress. The Lord is patient. And so we're in the middle of trial and struggle and pain and distress. And we're upset and our life is in turmoil. And we feel like we can't go on. And God is patient, waiting. He's working out his plan. The psalmist has in mind here God's restoring of the the, the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. But more than that, actually, if you look at this, the psalmist's view of what he expects God to do is even bigger than just rebuilding Jerusalem. Notice what he says. He says there, verse 15, the nations, the nations shall fear the name of Yahweh. And all the kings of the earth, your glory. Why? For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He says, God, you're going to build up this city again one day. But more than that, you're going to glorify yourself among all the nations. The psalm here and the psalmist he may be thinking initially about the return of the exiles from Babylon to come back and rebuild the city. That's going to happen. But he's really ultimately thinking about a greater glory. Something far greater and grander that's going to take place. The Lord is going to appear in His glory. And the nations are going to come and they are going to glorify and fear the name of the Lord. They're going to worship and praise Him. See, the psalmist is looking ahead and he's thinking about the Lord. What is God doing? And he's praying, God, I'm in this trouble right now and I need your help. But the more he prays and the more he thinks about God, he realizes God has got a plan that he's working out. And his plan, guess what? His plan extends way off into the distance. This Lord who endures forever, whose name is remembered to all generations. His plan is long-term. And His plan includes hearing prayer. Verse 17. He will regard the prayer of the destitute. By the way, I think that implies that the psalmist feels like he's one of the destitute. The people of Israel at this point in time, they're, they're among the destitute, those who are, who are suffering this affliction. Lord, you're going to hear the prayer. Lord, you're going to respond. But understand, this is God's plan. It's God's timetable. And God is patient. He's not in a rush. We get in a rush. God never gets in a rush. We get in a hurry. God's never in a hurry. He's always on time and He's always doing His plan. So the psalmist here is comforted 
by the fact that the Lord is patient, patiently waiting to fulfill his plan. There's another source of comfort, though, because sometimes patience looks like inactivity, right? Sometimes patience and deliberateness looks like laziness. I have to remind myself sometimes when I see that in my son. Sometimes I have to remember that deliberate, deliberateness is not always laziness. The truth of the matter is when the psalmist is thinking about God and he's thinking about God and he's praying and he's saying, God, I've got this problem and I need you to do something and God isn't doing anything. And he starts to think, okay, there's this great plan that God is working out. But we might still be tempted to say, but does God even care about me and what's going on right now? Notice what he says in verse 18. And I love this, by the way. This will be written for the generation to come. I'm writing this down, he says. I'm writing this down because somebody in the future is going to read this. And notice what's the impact. That a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Again, that's a really interesting phrase. I wish we had time to really unpack it and spend some time focusing on it. I don't think he's talking about people who have not been born yet. He's talking about a people. In other words, a group that has not yet been made. It's possible he's referring to the restoration of Israel. It's also possible he's referring to the Gentiles who are going to come to Christ and who are going to be fashioned into the church. A people yet to be made. I'm writing this down for their benefit, he says. Okay. That they may praise the Lord. <laughs> but notice then what he says about verse, 19, verse 19 here. What is it about God that's going to cause us to praise him in the midst of this trial? He says, He looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven, the Lord viewed the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death. Understand something. God sees and God hears. Psalmist says so. God is in heaven, but he sees and he hears what goes on here on earth. And more than that, he sees and he hears compassionately. God sees the affliction of his people. He hears the cry of his people. He is compassionate. So not only is the Lord patient and He's deliberate in working out His plan, but He's compassionate. He cares about the trials of His people. In fact, the language here is really similar um, to the language that's used back in the book of Exodus. You remember the children of Israel were taken down to Egypt and they became slaves there. And while they're slaves in Egypt, the Bible tells us that that the Lord heard their cries and He saw their affliction. And he was moved and to send a deliverer for them. There's a parallel here. It's as if the psalmist is saying, Lord, you did this before when you saw your people and you heard them afflicted and now we're being afflicted again. So Lord, I believe you're the same God who saved then, save now. He's making an appeal really to history, looking back at what God has done and he's appealing and saying, let's do this now. The Lord is compassionate. The Lord is not just ignoring the trials and troubles of His people. He cares. His heart is moved. This brings comfort to the psalmist. Again, even in verses 21 and 22, he seems to point to that future day of glory when he talks about the the name of, of, of Yahweh being declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve Yahweh. Again, he's looking beyond just Israel. When God brings the people and the kingdoms from the world to come and worship the Lord and serve the Lord, That's the glorious day when when all of these prayers and all of these cries and all of these troubles and sighs and the affliction and all of that will be dealt with. And so even as he prays here, he gains a perspective. He sees the Lord as patient. He sees the Lord as compassionate. He realizes that in looking to the end, in looking to the end of God's plan, he can see 
That God is not ignoring his people and God is not uh, uncaring and unfeeling about our affliction. And so we come to the psalmist's conclusion, the final stanza here, verses 23 to 28. And again, there's a whole bunch of things we could look at here, but I just want to try to boil this down to two, uh, two conclusions that the psalmist draws here. He speaks of himself, his own physical weakness and illness. And again, it's God who's responsible. He he acknowledges that fully. The length of his life, it's in God's hands. Right? That's what he says. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. God did this. God's the one who who brought this sickness in my life. God's the one who shortened my days. God's the one who's responsible. For the length of my life. So what's my response? Well, I'm going to trust God with my life. That's what the psalmist does here. We get to the end of the psalm. What does he do? He's trusting God with his life. He only has one request. I think it's interesting. Do not take me away in the midst of my days. I think what the psalmist is saying there is, don't take me away until I've finished the course. See, his desire is to finish the course. He wants to finish his life according to the plan of God. Don't take me away early. Just let me finish my course. And he's not saying, let me live here just a few more days longer. What he's saying is, I don't want to leave stuff undone. I want to finish my life. I want to finish what you've, got, what you've given to me to do, Lord. Because his heart is on mission here. His, he's already talked about this. He's writing this down for the generation to come. He says, I've got unfinished work to do. I need to write this down. I need to record this so that the generation following me can hear and can know and understand the truth about you. So Lord, don't take me away until I can do that. The psalmist is trusting God with his life. Then he begins to, this really interesting passage from verse 25 to 27 where he He contrasts the world with God. Speaks about God as the creator. Speaks about the earth being created by God. That he's laid the foundation. He's created the heavens. That they're the work of his hands. And notice what he says in verse 26. They will perish. The heavens and the earth. Everything around us is going to perish. This world was not made to be eternal. God designed it to serve a purpose. He's working out his plan. Guess what? He created this world. He began it. By the way, what does that tell us? It tells us that before this world was, God already was. Because he's the one that laid the foundation of this world. And guess what? After this world is gone... When it grows old like a garment, a well-used piece of clothing, and it's cast aside, there will still be God. The same. Unchanging. Always and ever the same. He says, well, this world is going to grow old. It's going to get cast away. It's going to get set aside. Just like we do with an old, uh, an old uh, uh, garment that we don't use anymore that's worn out, we get rid of it and we get a new one. We replace it. And he says, that's what's going to happen. But you, verse 27, you are the same. And your years will have no end. Okay. See, his trust is in the Lord. He trusts the Lord with his life. But... What's maybe even more difficult, he trusts the Lord with the future. He trusts the Lord with the future. Notice that. He, even as he closes here, he's speaking about how God, everything else is going to be destroyed. Everything else is going to go away. Lord, you're going to remain. And notice what he says, the very last verse. The children of your servants will continue. I may be gone. My children may be gone. My grandchildren may be gone. But the descendants of those who love you, they're going to continue. You see, 
I don't get to live on this earth to see the end of the plan. That's not how it works. I don't get to live to the end and God's the one who does that. My life is here. I get this little life, this little bit of time. And when it's done, it's done. I don't have to worry about what comes after. I don't have to worry about, 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 about trying to control and make sure everything works out in the end. That's God's job. He, he's talking here about children, about descendants. Listen, we get so worried and so anxious sometimes about what's going to happen to our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandchildren. What's going to happen to those we leave behind? And obviously, in one sense, humanly speaking, we need to be wise about that. But ultimately, we trust God. Because He's the one who works out His plan. And so as the psalmist is approaching the end of his life, realizing that he likely doesn't have much time left, his conclusion, and he rests, and he meditates on I mean, the, 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 the language and the poetry here in these final verses is so powerful. God, you created this world. They will perish, but you will endure. Verse 26. When everything else is in chaos and everything else crumbles and everything else fades away, God is the one who endures. The psalmist, the psalmist finds a source of trust, a solid rock which he can depend on. It's not the rock of the earth. It's not the laws of the universe. It's the God who made them who laid the foundation for them, who will set them aside when they're worn out and will change them. What are the implications for us and how should we respond today? There's so many things I could say. I just want to bring out one point. Understand that the psalmist here is operating on the assumption that God has made promises. And he believes that God is going to fulfill his promises. So even as he prays and even as he thinks about his circumstances, again, he believes God is working out a plan. You know, sometimes in the Bible it gives us glimpses into the plan of God. You know that? The psalmist here speaking about the plan of God with respect to Jerusalem, with respect to Israel, the nations. But you know, the Bible also gives us some indication of the personal plan of God. One of those passages of Scripture that is oftentimes used at funerals and sometimes not used well, um, and not just at funerals, but when there's a loss. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. People love to quote this verse. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And sometimes we like to trot that verse out and, and, and give it to someone thinking we're helping. And sometimes it helps, but sometimes we... We just kind of make them feel like, well, you shouldn't feel too down. You should be okay. It's just get over it kind of thing. If we do that, we're, we're really misusing this verse. You have to understand that in this chapter, in this verse, uh, that God, through the Apostle Paul, is giving us a little, in, little glimpse into his plan. You realize God is working out a plan in your life today? Paul just describes it here. In the very next verse, he says, by the way, verse 28, we just, what I just read to you, all things work together for good to those who are the called according to His purpose. That's how the verse ends. His purpose. God has a purpose. So the question is, what's God's purpose? Look at verse 29 there. He says, For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God's purpose for the believer, this is those who love God, those who are the called according to His These are just words that signify He's talking about believers here, Christians. What is God's plan for you as a Christian? God's plan is that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That you would take the shape of Christ. That's God's plan. And Paul says, we know that all things work together for that purpose. Right? He foreknew. 
he predestined he con- to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And if we continue reading verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. God has given us insight into the plan. The plan is that from where you are today, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, from where you are today, your life and your trajectory is to end up in glorification. Being made like Jesus Christ. Looking like Him. Talking like Him. Thinking like Him. Acting like Him. uh, Loving like Him. Being like Him. That's the goal. And God is working out that goal in your life. So maybe like the psalmist, you have to stop and think in the long term. Because we get so focused on the trial today. But that trial is part of the plan. It's part of God's process working to that goal. I encourage you today to trust in the Lord. Trust Him with your life. Trust Him with your future. He's unchanging. He'll be here long after you're gone. Continuing and working out His plan. He'll bring it to pass. If you're a Christian, He'll make you like Christ. That's the purpose for which all events are working in your life. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us trust Him today. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your Word. Lord, the testimony of the psalmist in Psalm 102, he was afflicted and overwhelmed, and we feel that many times. Many circumstances in our life, we find ourselves in difficult situations, and we don't know what to do, and we don't know how we can continue, and we don't know what the next step is going to be. We don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. Oh, Lord. We have this tremendous testimony of faith. This man who said he was going to write down this uh, psalm for a future generation. And here we are. Reading it. Lord, help us to, to, to meditate on it. Help us to consider the greatness of our God. Help us to consider your patience and compassion in working out your plan in our lives. Not just in our lives personally, but in our world today. And help us to renew our faith and our hope in you, just as the psalmist did. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's never uh, repented of their sin and trusted in Christ, they'd realize that this whole idea of God working out a plan in their life, the truth of the matter is God's plan for the sinner, for the rebel, for the unbeliever is hell and destruction. Lord, I pray that they would turn to you before it's too late and cry out for mercy and forgiveness. I thank you, Lord, for how you're working in our lives through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.